cybersecurity now gets an immense amount of attention. It hasn't always been this way, but there were people who were thinking about this 20 or even 30 years ago. I'm Jim Lewis, Senior Vice President and Director of the Technology Policy Program here at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. This podcast, Cyber from the Start, goes to the roots of cybersecurity. It looks at how we develop the policies we have for critical infrastructure, surveillance, espionage, warfare, and privacy. Looking at this and talking to the people who helped lay the foundations will help us see where we started and how we ended up where we are today. This is part two of our podcast with Eli Sugarman of the Hewlett Foundation. Eli's the head of their cyber initiative. He's one of the most knowledgeable guys in the field. Here we go. What's it like working with the big tech companies? You mentioned the the Fortune 5. I mean, who do you work with at the companies? Do you work with a lot of people or the what's it like working yeah. with them? So it's a good question. At every company it's different, right? Because you know, what we do is is a couple of things. Like one is we want them to co-fund, right? Like right. we want them right. to spend some of their money to give back to support nonprofits and universities that we are also supporting, mm-hmm. to diversify the funding that those groups have and to give them a relationship with the company because the second thing we want companies to do is help identify what are those real thorny policy challenges they are facing, whether vis-a-vis government, vis-a-vis malicious actors, whatever the case may be. Because if you want good research and good ideas to come out of civil society and academia, they need to talk to those who are on the front line. Yeah. And that is, largely speaking, government and industry. And the government, given the classification issues, is just harder to engage with in many respects. Hmm. And companies really should want civil society to be more involved in helping them come up with, with credible policy answers and solutions. And so, so we work with everybody from the policy teams to people in the you know mm-hmm. legal teams, to some engineers, trust and safety. Every company calls it differently. So digital diplomacy teams. So, so, hmm. so we try to cultivate a diverse array of contacts, academic relations, you know, so that we get a sense of, you know, who's the right person to plug in depending on, on what the project is or, or what the, the engagement is that we're, we're trying to further. And when you say uh, we, do you mean you or, or is it more than you at Hewlett? Sure. I mean, who? it's just you, Yeah, right? so it's the cyber team here is three people. Um, I lead it. So it's me and my colleagues doing that. Yeah, I mean, we have different, you know, different members right. of the team have different relationships. You know, obviously the president of the foundation or the board gets involved if it's particularly senior, high-level outreach and engagement. And so, yeah, it's, it's you know, coming back to your question about being based in Silicon Valley mm-hmm. and having been based here for 50-some-odd years, um, there are a wealth of relationships that we can draw upon depending on what the, what the situation demands. Where would you like to see improvement in this work? Where do you think the field needs to be strengthened? I, I mean, I think the biggest challenge that, you know, you can probably attest to and others can is there just isn't enough funding. Mm-hmm. And to some, that sounds weird because they'll reply, well, the government and private sector are spending literally billions of dollars a year on cybersecurity, you know, defending, hardening, you know, technical research, technical education. And my response is, that's very true. And they are spending basically nothing in comparison on these real thorny, complicated policy issues. If you look at federal research dollars, private sector funding in this domain, it's embarrassingly paltry. Mm. And frankly, the important hard questions are not just purely technical ones. And it's not just purely about 
allocating a spend to defend a network. It, it's, it's issues like this encryption debate that require a lot of thinking that's not wedded to a single company or its corporate interest um, or, um, or the government's interests. Um, and so you need, you need that, that longer-term horizon and the independence that, that comes from academia or the nonprofit world, mm-hmm. and that sort of policy-oriented, multidisciplinary money like just really isn't there. Um, you know, you look at the high-net-worth individuals who have made, become billionaires on the, the, the back of, of the commercialized Internet. Um, you know, many of them are becoming active philanthropists, and they deserve praise for that. Very few, if any of them, are dedicating any funding to thinking about how do I make this insecure internet ecosystem more secure for people and address some of these policy issues. And, and I don't think they fully internalize that they have profited wildly off creating something that is not just positive. Like it's, it's a fiction and a farce to just think like, oh, all of these great websites and applications and tools are only positive. It's like, no, that's nonsense. Yeah. And if you're going to engage in philanthropy, you know, like one area I think that require, so I think not, not to sort of like beat that horse, or, but um, like more money, I think is the biggest challenge to build part of the field. The universities will probably find some of it. The think tanks and nonprofits are, 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 are starved, like quite literally starved. So like that's challenge one. Challenge two is the field isn't diverse. You know, if, if you look at sort of the nastiness on Twitter and some of the gatekeeping that's oftentimes like racially and, and you know, very gendered in the information security community and cybersecurity community, like that's a big problem, you know, and so, so you need more diversity across various arrays from, you know, um, ethnicity, you know, gender, geographic diversity, political viewpoint, that there still is not enough of that. And so, so I think to be a healthy, robust field, it needs to represent everybody uh-huh. in the country and, and it doesn't yet do that yet. So I think, I think that's another big challenge. Uh-huh. How do you think about recruiting minorities, though? Because we've been sort of going through that here. You know, there, there's some local schools, and I'm not quite sure what to... UMD, Maryland, has good programs. They're doing a lot of work. But like UDC, what what would you do? Yeah, sure. No, so our approach to recruiting, um, you know, is basically, you know, you spend a lot of time trying to get the applicant pool right. Mm-hmm. And, and you do that by sort of, you know, reaching out to, I think, a broad array of, of organizations. So, so I would start with you make sure that you hit other than just a couple Ivy League schools, right? So mm-hmm. you, you do hit right. um, universities with, with more diverse student bodies along with all the other universities you would hit. And so if you want to look at like, you know, FIU has like a predominantly Latino and Hispanic student body down in Florida and has like a really good cybersecurity program that's really growing and quite dynamic. And so, right. And then you have, you know, like, um, you know, other schools that you've mentioned and others. And so, yeah. so first is you cast a wide net and you make sure that you get it to all the universities. Then you go to, there are also a lot of groups that are then um, affinity groups or membership organizations that focus on minorities in cybersecurity, information security, internet policy. And you make sure that their membership is apprised of the opportunities because they all have mailing lists mm-hmm. and are super receptive. And so we have a list of those um, that, that we include um, you know, there's a lot to be said for how you write the job description and how you go about inter- interviewing to make sure that conscious and unconscious bias is minimized to the extent feasible. And so, so then the process also needs to take these things into account. I, I would say like a really thoughtful treatment of this was actually written by um, Tech Congress, mm-hmm. um, which is an effort that, that places, you know, bipartisan technical fellows in offices in Congress. Travis Moore helps run it. 
and designed like a super inclusive hmm. like hiring process that that really ensures a really good and inclusive pool. And then I think wrote up a really nice blog post about how they drew on best practice from sort of hiring and social sciences research to show how you try to limit and extinguish conscious and unconscious bias in hiring and at the same time attract a diverse applicant pool. And so um, I can shoot that over to you, but but we learned a lot from that blog post. I, I think others have followed suit, but but no, it, it, it takes time. And I would say that like important things, uh, like most important things, you get out of it what you put in. And it's, yeah, it is not easy, but it is really important. And it is getting easier because like there are more tools and mailing lists. And, you know, if you're looking for, you know, women experts in tech and cyber policy, SourceList is an amazing resource. It's a website that Susan Hennessy at Lawfare uh-huh. and Brookings helped develop that there's really just self-identified experts and you have some amazing women on there. And the whole point of that is to say, I'm tired of conference organizers and journalists coming to me saying, who are women experts on this? This is me not saying tired of me, but, but Susan and others right. voicing this thing like, just do a little work and go on the freaking website and you've got a lot of dynamic, amazing people um, like Susan and her peers, all you need to do is, is take that one step further because a lot of the networks people draw upon, unfortunately, are not as diverse. What are the biggest issues for future work for you? Where would you want to see research concentrated? We're starting to see critical mass. What do you want them to focus on? It's a good question, and it's sort of one that I typically dodge because um, <laughs> I think too often funders are too prescriptive. And somebody comes and says, I could work on anything. What on cybersecurity should I work on? Which is basically code for what should I work on so that you'll fund me? And oftentimes, if you let what the funder wants totally drive it, you end up with research that isn't actually the passion of the researcher Mm -hmm. and is sort of artificially contorted to satisfy the funder as opposed Mm -hmm. to saying like, what are you as a researcher passionate about and best suited and able to do better than anybody else? And that's what you should fund. Mm-hmm. And if that isn't a match for the foundation, then you shouldn't fund it. But it's much, we have found that you have better success and impact if you let the researcher. Hmm. And then, you know, like, don't get me wrong, like we ask questions and sort sure. of make sure that it's policy relevant yeah. as opposed to just being published in an academic journal. But so, so oftentimes I, I purposely turn that question back on the questioner and say, well, what do you think hmm. and why? And then I'll sort of like offer advice because if they're like, I really just want to work on information sharing and only information sharing, I'll just like to be like, seriously, like, <laughs> what what new work on information sharing do you possibly want to do? Or they want the vague, I want to work on international norms. And I'm like, okay, like what? Because like yeah. there has been so much work done and there's so much work ongoing that yeah. there is still valuable work to be done on norms. Like don't get me wrong. But a lot of the generic work on norms like that n- new people want to do, I'm just like, no, no, absolutely not. That is just like totally useless. I don't need a new analysis on does this cyber attack constitute you know, an act of war under international law. Like, it's a political decision, for the love of God. It's a political decision. Like, everything in international law, it's a political decision. Can we please move on with our lives? Thank you. <laughs> um, and so sometimes lawyers don't like to hear that. Um, or I'll say, you know, have you spoken to government officials or large companies to understand what they're actually seeing on their networks and who they think is behind it? So that you actually understand how force is being projected, not just by reading the news. And so... Okay, so so what, what, where do I think new research is needed now that that rant um, is over? Um, it, just as an aside, one of the know, experts I, said, I see tons of expert, I see tons of research on norms, but not much of it is useful. <laughs> yeah, no, I, 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 I echo that sentiment. I think 
emerging technologies and technology mm. trends should inform what people research. Like you do not need backwards looking research. And so an example there is there's a lot of hand waving about artificial intelligence. <laughs> um, but the intersection of artificial intelligence and cybersecurity is actually really important. Mm. And the DARPA grand challenge a few years back showed that on the technical side, very little policy thinking and, you know, thinking about regulatory issues has been done to say, Oh, the DARPA Grand Challenge showed that automated defense and offensive scale are the wave of the future and now going to be monetized by a million companies. What does that mean for policy issue X or Y or the regulation of X or Y? Mm-hmm. And so, like, a lot of that kind of work is needed. Mm-hmm. And, and that holds for the impact of other technologies and trends on cybersecurity. Moving everything to the cloud and the reliance on cloud infrastructure and looking at cybersecurity issues through the cloud lens, because that is going to be the predominant place where every asset is based, opens up all sorts of interesting issues about systemic risk and the like. Mm-hmm. And so I think, you know, parsing that and really getting into it um, is important. You know, Bitcoin and blockchain, and I think people are, you know, off the deep end on yeah. that issue a bit more. But when quantum computing becomes mainstream, you know, Again, like a lot of that technically to roll, you know, to roll out the new systems and keys and stuff like has been thought through to some degree. But then again, like, are there policy and legal issues that flow from it? And oftentimes the answer is nobody has really thought about that deeply enough. And so what I would like to see more is an awareness of where the technology is moving and then getting ahead of the policy and legal issues that will arise once those new technologies are adopted. And, and oftentimes the research agenda is backwards looking. And on encryption, it's a perfect example. It's all... Let's relitigate San Bernardino now that the Justice Department is convening its, its you know, gatherings and, and the Senate's holding hearings. Again, I, I fear that that debate is going to be backwards looking as opposed to forwards, forward looking. Beyond that, you know, I think that, that more needs to be done to think about how do you leverage the private sector to frankly play the leadership role it needs to play in a way that actually benefits society and is that by maturing cyber insurance so that it actually aligns incentives to defend more and to invest more? You know, is it through investors leveraging their influence so that their startups aren't just soft targets for malicious actors to steal all sorts of sensitive data? Whatever the case may be, I think given how important the private sector is in this domain, there needs to be more attention to what are options short of overt regulation, just given how mired in dysfunction the U.S. and many democracies are these days at the government level, what are other ways to get the private sector to change its behavior? Um, and there are lots of historical examples there, but there's a lot of, you know, mm-hmm. there's a lot of work that's needed there, too. We didn't talk about privacy at all, but maybe we should, because I think that what I'm seeing is some of these issues, privacy, governance, cybersecurity, they're, they're kind of slowly converging to some extent. So yes. What's your what's your thinking on privacy? I I've sort of concluded I don't have a good metric. We don't have privacy anymore. I get it. I was in Brussels a couple weeks ago and they didn't get it. I said, you know what? How are you going to sustain this? Data is the currency, and I agree with you. I, I feel discomfort about uh, some of the practices we see from companies. On the other hand. What's the substitute? And I got a really sure. funny reaction from one of the commission people. They said, "Well, you know, young people don't care as much about privacy." I thought, "Wow, you know." So, what what are you thinking on privacy? There still has not been a meaningful like societal conversation that is then reflected in law and regulation. And mm-hmm. so, um, I think this is the perfect 
place where civil society groups oftentimes speak for themselves and assume mm-hmm. it's how everybody feels, and that's yeah. not the case. Tons of surveys prove that. Government doesn't have a solution because there is no unified federal privacy anything in the United States except in a couple small ex- yeah. exceptional areas. But I do agree that the collapsing of everything is the real challenge because then the question is, like, who's in charge and how do we balance the trade-offs between privacy, security, and commerce? And they're not always in, in working against one another, but oftentimes there are trade-offs. Like, it's a fiction to say that you can have all three of those 100% at all times. You just can't. Yeah. And so my fear is that we don't even know how to have that conversation given the dysfunction in government. Uh an uneducated populace on those issues and policymakers who just throw up their hands every every time anything technical hits their desk. And so um, I think there's a lot of great research and a lot of great new technology coming out that can help. But, I, you know, like I, and in California, trying to like, you know, take the lead a little bit mm-hmm. domestically, you know, GDPR becoming the new global standard. Um, I, I think the short term, it's just going to be everybody follows the GDPR yeah. because that's the easiest thing to do. The, the, Europeans, the Europeans were very pleased with it. They said, look, we, we're going to export. We're, we'll be the regulatory leaders for the world. And look, we've already had one big great, success. Great. Look and at they, California. And, 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 and their one big success is, is locking in the market advantage of all major U.S. tech companies, because that is the major <laughs> result of GDPR, <laughs> is it prevents competition, because yeah. the compliance burden is so onerous, nobody other than a Microsoft or a Google or an Amazon or whatever can actually make sense of that yeah. You know, yeah. Byzantine regulation that is going to be interpreted differently by all sorts of DPAs, creating all sorts of regulatory ambiguity. It's a hot mess. You know, again, personal opinion, not to be attributed to the Got it. Tell us what your agenda is for the next year. What are you going to be doing? I think our agenda, Jim, is, is it, it's an interesting inflection point because the cyber initiative will wind down in 2023. So we won't be making any grants after that. Uh-huh. And so we're really thinking about now that we've made some big bets, how do we help sustain them? What sorts of resources does the field need that can be shared? Do they need to learn how to fundraise better? Do they need better images for cybersecurity? Do they need to learn how to write op-eds? It's like, what are those force multipliers or force multiplying capacities we can help beyond just write checks to help those institutions we're funding continue to mature? Who are new entrants to the field that we need to lift up to help make it more inclusive Uh and diverse? So are there new groups that that we really need to target? And, And how do you improve international connectivity between groups because this isn't just a u.s yeah. effort and so we need to make sure that the groups in the u.s like you are connected and as you are to the global conversation because oftentimes in dc folks are myopically dc oriented which which doesn't work because these are global issues and apropos of what you just said with the europe regulating the space if you don't know what's happening in brussels you're sort of missing a huge part of the game this has been great wonderful i really appreciate it Thanks for listening to Cyber from the Start. You can hear an unedited full version of my interview on the Technology Policy Program page at CSIS.org. There's some interesting stuff in those longer interviews. Make sure to subscribe on iTunes and SoundCloud or wherever you get your podcasts. See you on the next episode of Cyber from the Start.